You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. We have the highest level of education and skills and accomplishment by women than we have ever had in any generation in the history of the world at this point. Women have earning power that they never had before. And the actual numbers of women in senior management, women on boards, women who are decision makers in venture firms, all of those measures that we follow very closely are moving at a pace that is slower than we would like, but they are all moving in the right direction. So we have to be hopeful. You probably have a solid plan for retirement, but you still might be wondering, did I miss something? Is there something more I can do right now to secure my future? It's time to find out. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining us today on Her Money. Over the past few months, we have talked a lot about market volatility, about recession fears. And as you might expect, one of the main questions that we are hearing from you is, well, where do I put my money now? And it is a really good question that we're gonna try to answer today. The thing is, we wanna make sure that our money is doing well for us. We want it to do good things for the environment, for the social causes we care most about. And when possible, we want to invest in women. But we also want to make sure that our investments can weather the storm of a recession. I don't know if any of you have done a Google search recently for best investments during a recession or something like that. But if you do, you'll often notice recommendations to buy stocks in the oil and gas industries or tobacco and firearms. Today, we are going to investigate where we can put our money that's not there. We're going to talk about what investing for good really looks like in a post-COVID world. And we're doing it with Loretta McCarthy. She is the co-CEO and managing partner of Golden Seeds. They're an investment organization that invests in early stage women-led companies in the United States. Golden Seeds is one of the largest and most active angel networks in the U.S. since 2005, it's invested more than $170 million in more than 225 women-led companies. Loretta's also on the board of directors of Take the Lead Women, an organization that supports the growth of women in leadership in all sectors. And she is joining us from her home in New York City. Loretta, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Jean. Great to be here. Nice to be with you, too. Can you tell us how you got started investing? My first taste of investing was in high school, really, when I was very fascinated by how the stock market worked. I had was in a family that had some interest in that. I developed a real interest, and I started investing very tiny amounts in individual stocks. So I just started investing in a very small way. Eventually, I did end up working on Wall Street, and I was working at both American Express and then later at Oppenheimer Funds, where we were managing billions of dollars in mutual funds. And I became completely fascinated with how people relate to their own money 
and how they do or do not pay attention to investing, which is such an important part of their lives, how people manage their financial assets, which is something that we concluded a lot of people don't pay enough attention to. So at that organization, Oppenheimer Funds, we actually did start an initiative helping women learn more about yeah. their own portfolios. You remember that, Jean. I think I you were do. part of it at the time. I do That's remember right. it. Bridget McCaskill, who was your yes. CEO at the yes, time, she exactly. led that endeavor. You did the first big study of women in investing that I've ever seen and really made some great strides for women in the world of investing. When you made your initial investments, your, your first stocks that you picked in high school, what did you learn from that experience? I learned that it's very helpful to be informed as an investor. The very few stocks I picked were things that interested me. So if I was interested in what they were doing, probably at the time it was a lot of consumer products that I was interested in, I would be more inclined to follow how they're doing. I would be more inclined to have opinions about how I, as a consumer, interacted and was serviced by that company. So I feel the more aware you are of investing and the more relationship you have with the things you're investing in, the more likely you will be to pay attention. So I think you can all, and of course you get annual reports and proxies and all of that, but really my recollection is that I paid attention as a consumer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. So flash forward, it's 2022. How far have women come in our investing journey? Well, I think we do know that women are the major wage earners in many households at this point, even through COVID, that has been the case. Women, we believe, and I don't follow this as closely as I did in those years, but we do believe, and we certainly have seen in the work that I now do, that women have stepped up to be much more active participants in managing their own portfolios, doing their own investing, having their own financial advisors, and in fact, doing a great deal of angel investing, which women really were not doing many years ago. So to me, it is very much correlated to the earning power that women have that is giving them a great deal of voice in how their own personal assets are invested. When we talk about women becoming angel investors, the question that we get asked a lot is, where do we start, right? I mean, I, I've done some angel investing, and the first couple of companies I invested in were companies that I was doing either a little work for or I knew somebody in the company. I thought it was an interesting concept. And I think I just said, I, you know, I'd like to invest, right? It was that kind of a transaction. But I'm wondering in a more formal way for women who are looking for an introduction, how do we take them there? And maybe we can take a step back and talk about how Golden Seeds found its footing. You know, in 2004, the founder of Golden Seeds, whose name is Stephanie Newby, who herself was a Wall Street executive, noticed the following, that although there were 50,000 companies in the United States that year that got startup funding, fewer than 3% of them were led by women. And she also noticed 
that more than 25% of all companies that were being started in that year were led by women. So there was a huge disconnect, which basically said that women were probably starting a lot of really interesting companies, but were not participating at all in accumulating capital for those companies. And there are many things that contributed to that, which actually still exist today to some degree. But the reason this organization started was to begin the process of closing that gap so that more and more women who were starting companies had the capacity to enter an environment which we tried to create in which they would be seriously considered, they would be treated respectfully, and they would have a real shot at getting funding. So that's what we've been doing now for 18 years. How does it work today? And maybe explain how it works from both sides. If you are a woman who is looking to invest, and if you are a company, a CEO, a founder looking for funding. If you are a woman who is interested in doing this investing, or if a man as well, it's very easy to find out in many locations how to get involved with angel investing. There are 250 groups of angel investors in the United States. So it's a big industry. Today, these angel investors invested, last year, they invested in 70,000 companies. It's a $28 billion industry. So this, too, was a field that women were not really active in back in 2004 when I mentioned earlier that women weren't getting funding. It is also true that women were not participating as angel investors at that time. So it's very easy to go to any angel investment group. You can find the names of them on the website for the angelcapitalassociation.org. Golden Seeds is among those organizations. You can contact them. You can read about them. They often will have a specialty, like we specialize in investing only in women-led companies. There are groups that invest only in life sciences. There are groups that invest only in consumer products. There are groups that only invest in a certain state or a certain county. But you can find your way to groups that might be a good home for you. And it's very easy to ask to attend a meeting, get to know some people, and try to imagine, would I like to do work with these people? Would I like to co-invest alongside these people? Those people who are members of angel organizations often refer to it as a team sport. You know, we do this work together. We capitalize on everybody's skills. Everybody brings something else to the team as we evaluate companies, look at them, and ultimately invest. So it is a team sport, and we believe, you mentioned, Jean, that you've made some individual angel investments. Of course, there are people who do make individual investments in these organizations that are the angel networks. We actually believe that the level of due diligence and the kind of work that goes into evaluating these companies has a likelihood of producing a good investment results because you have more diverse opinions making those initial decisions. So we like the diversity of thought that you get with an angel network. How much money does it typically take to get started? It depends on which organization it is, but we usually start by saying to people, it is a really good idea to think about building a portfolio of these investments. 
not put too much money into any one investment, but start building a portfolio because this is a risky asset class. These are very early stage companies. The one thing that can mitigate risk is to be diversified because you're hoping that out of every 10, 15 companies, a handful of them will do really well and others will not do well. That is Mm -hmm. just the nature of the beast. So it's really good to build a portfolio. We often say of 15 or 20 companies, 30 if you can, and that's over a period of time. You don't do that right away, but it's good to, if you're going to get involved with this asset class, think in terms of having an array of companies. Yeah, no, that makes total sense to me. So how much would you put into each company typically? What would be the smallest amount? And I want to sort of talk about this in terms of, okay, how much money do you need to have in order to do this? But then how much money do you need to have overall in terms of your life and your portfolio and your investments and your 401k for even considering playing in these waters? So the individual investments are usually determined by how much money the company is raising and what their requirements are, and also what the angel investment group requires. But it is very common for the first investment to be somewhere between ten dollars and $15,000. People will often put more in, but it is very common that it is between ten dollars and $15,000. One thing that is quite terrific about angel investing is that usually these companies come back for more capital later. And if they do, it's usually because they're having some success so they can show what they were able to do with their first investment. And if you like what you see, you can add more. So you don't have to add all that much at the very beginning. You can wait and see and participate in later rounds. We've had companies that have had many, many rounds of funding where they keep getting funding from the same people over and over because they're making progress. So in terms of appropriateness, as you mentioned, this is a very risky asset class. And you're right, I've put money into companies where I have lost it all. And I've put money into companies where I've made some money. And you kind of have to expect that that's just the way it's gonna go. Who is this appropriate for? What kind of assets do you need to have? Do you need to make sure you've checked off the boxes for retirement and homeownership and the other goals on your list? It's such a completely relevant question. You know, the SEC does have rules around this, which is called that if you're going to be an accredited investor, you attest the fact that you are, that you meet certain criteria and those criteria include having a net worth of at least a million dollars, not including your primary residence or not and, or having income of either 200,000 or 300,000 filing jointly. And those are the requirements for accredited investors, which is a self-certification that all investment organizations do. That doesn't tell you what percentage of your assets you should be willing to put into this asset class. So I think you stated it just exactly right, Jean. Check off what your retirement requirements are. Are you saving for college education? What are your daily, monthly, annual living expenses? And make sure that those things are covered so that if you do this, you could very well 
have a wonderful financial result, but you have to go into it knowing that this is a risky asset class and you could lose these investments. It also is true that it's a long game. If you invest in year one, it could be year seven, 10, or 12, even for the successful companies, for you to see a real return. And those can be very handsome when they happen. But it is not liquid during the time of owning these companies. These are not public companies, so you can't call your broker and say, I want to sell that today. These are private companies, and there really is not, by and large, a market for them during the time that you own it. We all know we play the long game here. Yeah, you're waiting for what they call a liquidity event. You're waiting for the company to decide they're going to sell or they're going to take on a bigger investor who's going to buy you out or they're going to go public in a few cases here and there. So you're 100% right with that. I want to tee up the notion of angel investing in this economy, angel investing in, you know, we don't know if we're in a recession, but we're certainly at a point where the economy feels a little more tenuous than it's felt in a long time. But before we do that, Loretta, let me just remind everybody that we are proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Why? Because retirement is a big deal. And since women live longer, we have to make our savings last longer. And that just means we have to plan smarter. Visit edelmanfinancialengines.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor. If you do this, you can get a fresh look at your finances. You can work with experts to create a plan to help build, grow, protect, and preserve your wealth for the retirement that you're dreaming about because it's your money. It's up to you to make it count. You can get started at planefe.com slash hermoney and speak with an advisor today. I'm talking with Loretta McCarthy. She is co-CEO and managing partner at Golden Seeds. So this economy is tricky, right? There, there, there are a lot of factors we just can't control. The markets being a big one, inflation, interest rates. How do you view angel investing in a down market or a rocky period in the economy? Thank you for that question about the economy. It's very much on our minds. We do have this perspective at Golden Seeds. In the time that we have existed, we have been through two serious down markets. One was the recession in 2008 and 2009. And then the second one was, of course, the pandemic. And in both cases, the stock market declined quite a lot. In the second case, it rebounded much more quickly than in the first. But we also carefully observed our investors during that time and also entrepreneurs. And what I would say is that entrepreneurs continued to innovate throughout all of that time, which is, of course, the thing that gets our juices going as angel investors. We love hearing about new innovations. So it, it is fascinating. Maybe necessity is the mother of invention, maybe difficult times such as the pandemic and when you're home and have the opportunity to think creatively, just inspired a lot of innovation. But we definitely saw many companies starting and expanding during both of those downturns that we did not necessarily expect to see. 
We also have observed our own investors, and they are more cautious. So far in the first half of this year, we have not seen a big change, but we also can anticipate that people will monitor closely how these companies are doing. Many of our members, our investors, work very closely with our 80 companies that are operating today just to be sure that they know how they're doing, that they're counseling them on how they're working with their cash and their prospective businesses to be sure that they will weather this economy, whatever it becomes. So it is very likely that people who have sufficient wealth to be doing this kind of investing in the first place will continue to do so in a measured way. You know, it totally depends upon their own comfort level with doing this investing, how they feel about the opportunities presented to them, and really how deep they want to go into their portfolio. But we do not expect that this will slow down a great deal. And I would say if you're so worried about your personal financial picture that making this kind of an investment would cause you to lose any sort of sleep at all, right. this is just not an investment that you should be making. That's right. I mean, you said it very well a few minutes ago. You kind of have to check off the other boxes to be sure that you're okay in the other categories of your life. And then if you are, you have the opportunity to not only experience the possible financial upside of this, but also the thrill of being part of this whole economy that is really the innovation economy, if you're comfortable with that, and many people are. Well, and you're you're totally right. I, I did some, some quick uh, Googling, and the companies launched during recessions. It's a long and very admirable list, right? Everything from Trader Joe's, FedEx, Microsoft, Disney, HP, I mean, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And I think that's something that's exciting. I also love your characterization of it as a team sport. We have a program called Investing Fix. It's our version of an investing club for women. I'm leading it with Karen Feinerman from CNBC. And we're teaching investing and we're learning together and we're picking stocks together. The collaborative energy is really, really fun. Yes, I totally agree about learning. The we know that the more educated people are in anything, you could draw the analogy with anything such as learning a foreign language. In some cases, this is in fact learning a foreign language. The more they understand the tricks of the trade and how to think about this kind of investing, and the more confident they become, the more they will actually participate. So we have learned that and in fact also have a training curriculum that trains all of our angel investors how to do this work. There are a number of investors who see themselves as sitting at the intersection of maybe angel investing and ESG investing. Investing in ESG, we've done shows on this before. If you're not familiar, you can go back and you can take a listen to those. But ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance. And when we talk about ESG investing, we're really talking about doing well while doing good. Investing in companies that are creating 
the world as we want to see it. So how do we find those companies in the angel world? And how do we avoid the ones that are not walking the walk that we want to walk ourselves? Within angel investing, there are definitely groups that are focusing on some aspect of ESG. In the case of Golden Seeds, we are definitely in the S space. We are focused specifically on women, which is included in the social aspects of ESG. So that's a place to start. There are definitely groups that are focusing on diversity or entrepreneurs of color or investors of color. That's definitely in the ESG space. You can find your way to them as well. And then within that, not just within Golden Seeds, but within all of angel investing, there are groups that are particularly interested in companies that are doing something with sustainability or something with healthcare or something that might relate to governance. Many groups of angel investors invest in a wide array of companies, but if you're a member of a group, you can pick and choose which companies you're interested in. So many companies will come through who are doing something in the environment. And then we form a team of people who evaluate exactly what are they doing and do we believe that they're going to be able to deliver on this promise. Right. And it's an important part of the process, this due diligence, not just in the angel world, but in investing overall. The SEC recently investigated Goldman Sachs for putting an ESG label on funds that might not deserve it. And there was a recent investigation into Deutsche Bank in Germany as part of a probe into allegations of, quote unquote, greenwashing, where companies make unrealistic or misleading claims about their environmental credentials. I guess what I'm wondering is, what do you guys use as a smell test? It's really quite thrilling to realize that this whole area of ESG has gotten a lot of publicity, a lot of consideration, and focus in recent years. So at long last, there are standards that are emerging in terms of how companies are being assessed on each of those measures, environmental, social, and governance. For instance, the company S&P Global is an example of a company that measures many aspects of how companies are meeting the requirements of ESG for their particular industries. And there are others. Sustain Analytics is another one. MSCI is another. So that kind of methodology will eventually make its way into midsize and smaller companies eventually, which is great. Every company, even if they are the smallest companies on earth, should still today, if they are being launched, have a point of view about how they are going to create an ESG environment for their company. It's part of the company culture that they should think about that from the earliest days of starting their companies. What I'm hearing you say is that maybe this is the thing that finally moves the needle. I mean, for decades now, we have been talking about elevating women to more positions of power within the financial world. Just to use one example, today, just 1.4% of all assets at U.S.-based firms are managed by firms owned by women or people of color, right? So this is just, I think, one step in the right direction toward creating a world where women are 
playing a bigger role in the financial landscape. As we wrap this up, let me just ask very simply, do you see progress on the horizon? I do, Jean. I can't help but see progress on the horizon. I know that the pandemic was a pretty tough time for women in the workplace in many ways, but I also see the following. We have the highest level of education and skills and accomplishment by women than we have ever had in any generation in the history of the world at this point. Women have earning power that they never had before. And the actual numbers of women in senior management, women on boards, women who are decision makers in venture firms, all of those measures that we follow very closely are moving at a pace that is slower than we would like, but they are all moving in the right direction. So we have to be hopeful. And that's what we do as we move the ball forward. Loretta McCarthy, thank you so much for doing this with me today. I appreciate you being here. I know that we're going to have a lot of our listeners checking out Golden Seeds and seeing if they want to get involved or may want to get involved with that or another angel network. So we appreciate the education. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jean. You too. Before we jump into our mailbag, let me just take a sec to remind everyone that Her Money is supported by BCU. BCU is a credit union that understands that financial freedom doesn't just happen at one single point. It happens at many different stages of your life all along the way, which is why BCU is here today for your tomorrow with support available at every stage of your financial journey. And you can learn more about eligibility at www.bcu.org. Catherine Tuggle joins me now for our mailbag. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. You doing all right? I'm doing okay. Yeah, I'm doing fine. I'm a little sniffly this morning, and I apologize to our audience for that. Something is in the air, man. It's like allergies have all of a sudden just hit me. And I'm not exactly sure what it is. I don't see the pollen. I don't think it's pollen season. I don't see a lot of milkweed or anything else blowing around, but boy, am I feeling it. Oh man. Yeah. I would say the same thing. So what did you think about what Loretta said about investing in a recession? Because I'm curious what you have seen over the years that you thought was particularly good advice for what people should do during 2008 or maybe even during your first job when you were on Wall Street? I have learned that I am a very, very bad timer of these things, right? And every time I think I know which direction the economy is going to go or when the switch is going to flip and things are going to get better, I am just wrong. I'm wrong. And I read as you know, everything, right? And I get to talk to really smart people about this stuff. And so my feeling is we invest all along the way. And interestingly, when we've looked at some of the very, very best individual days in the market, and you all have seen these papers, at least I I think you probably have, that show you that if you miss even the best 10 days, single days, not weeks, not months, not quarters, days. If you miss the best 10 days in 
the market over many, many years, your returns are so much lower than they would be if you had just stayed invested. And so I think you got to just be in it all the time. I mean, my favorite piece of advice going into the past couple of years came from a woman named Jamie Kramer. I was on a panel discussion with her. She works at J.P. Morgan Chase. And she said, it's not timing the market. It's time in the market. And I have just really held on to that. I think we have to just, you know, recessions mean you got to make sure you've got your emergency funds lined up because should unemployment start to rise, you don't want to be caught without emergency funds should you need them. Recessions are times when we look at our balance sheets and we think about can we pay off some debt, particularly some high interest rate debt, which will lower our overall cost of living. But otherwise, we'll just have to be in it, diversified investing in it. And as we go through our investing fix journey, many people know that I'm, I'm teaching a course. I think of it as a course. What it really is, is an investment club for women called Investing Fix. Karen Feinerman, who's a Wall Street pro, and I are teaching this every other Monday night to a group of interested women. If you'd like to join us, it's a subscription program where you can join our investing club and you can help us build this portfolio and you can build your own portfolio simultaneously along the way. But what I'm learning is that there are always opportunities and there are always good things to buy. And if you can hold on to your emotions, you're going to be much better off down the road. That was a very, very long-winded answer to your question. I loved every bit of it. And I love the idea of hold on to your emotions in the same way that you <laughs> hold on to your stocks, right? Like yeah. buy, sell, or hold. It, put emotions in the hold category. That's perfect. Exactly. Exactly. I know we've got a bunch of questions today, so why don't we dive in? Yeah. Our first question is also about investing. It comes to us from Kristen. She writes, these days there are so many investing apps such as Stash, Robinhood, Elevest, etc. I have no idea how to find out the strengths and weaknesses of each one. Is there a way to tell which platform is right for us without downloading each app and spending a few weeks trying it out? They're all advertised as a way to invest, even if you don't have a ton of money, but I wonder if that's accurate. I also wonder what considerations are needed for these apps when it comes to doing your taxes and when and what earnings need to be reported. If you recommend some over others, I'd love for you to please clarify why. Thank you. It's a really good question, Kristen. I don't think we've had this question before. And what's interesting to me about the way that you wrote the question is you're focused on the newbies in the crowd when, in fact, the large investing firms, Fidelity, Vanguard, Schwab, they all have their own apps and robo-advisors as well. So you don't have to limit yourself to these new choices. You actually have a much larger landscape to choose from. A couple of ways that I would look to potentially pick one of these apps to work with. First, 
just like everything these days, there are reviews out there online. I want to be honest here, I have not tested every single one of these, but there are people who spend hours each day testing and comparing. And if you go online and you look for the reviews, you'll find that not only are they there, but they're really in-depth. You're right about the fact that you don't have to have a lot of money to get involved in these apps. In fact, the minimum balance is typically zero for many of them. They're trying to engage investors who are just at the beginning of their journey, and so they don't want to make it difficult for them to contribute or put in even as little money as they have to start with. And many of them sell fractional shares or what they sometimes call slices for the same purpose. They don't want you to be limited by the fact that you want to start with $50 a month or $100 a month or or wherever you want to start. Trading costs or commissions are also almost across the board really, really small if they exist at all. That's just another hurdle that you don't have to worry about. As far as your tax question, a number of these do what they call tax loss harvesting. And it's basically the strategy of selling some investments at a loss in order to offset the taxable gains of other investments. It can be very beneficial over your lifespan as an investor, but otherwise, if you don't sell your investments, then you typically don't have to worry about the tax implications. The tax implications don't actually happen until you decide that you are going to sell. So if you're not in a portfolio managed by a robo-advisor, but rather you're just using these apps to buy and sell yourself, you don't have to worry about taxes until you sell. The last sort of difference that I would point out to you is that there are some of these apps, there's some of these systems that are set up more for savers, And I'm thinking particularly of Acorns, which grabs money that you haven't spent. They do the kind of roundup that you might find with a credit card, and they start to invest that money. Now, that money in and of itself is not going to build you a portfolio that's going to get you to retirement, but it may get you started. Other differences that you may want to pay attention to, Elevest is focused on women. We're focused on women too. And they build certain facets of a woman's life, in particular, the idea that women are going to outlive men into their investing algorithms. So that may be something to take into consideration as well. The last thing that I would just say is if you've listened to me long enough, you know that I am a big fan of keeping things as easy as possible. And so if you have a 401k with one of the large investing firms, if you've got your 401k, for example, with Fidelity, or if you have your 401k with Schwab or with anybody else, you may want to look at their app simply because at that point you'll be able to see everything on a single page. But I hope that I gave you at least a small lay of the land as you go forward. And thanks so much for listening. Beautiful, Jean. Thanks for that rundown. I have also been curious about that myself. Our next question today comes to us from Noelle in Minneapolis. She writes, 
Hi, Jean. I love the podcast and I've been listening for years. During the pandemic, I started to listen during bubble baths. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) That's great. I feel like this should be what I do. I'm going to try that. She says, now your theme music sounds to me like me time, smiley face. Quick question. I've heard you many times advise listeners to freeze their credit to avoid fraud, and I froze mine several years ago. But something I've never heard discussed is should I still be regularly checking my credit reports even when my credit is frozen? I kind of stopped worrying about it after the freeze, but now I wonder if I've been lulled into a false sense of security. Thank you so much for all you do. Thanks so much for writing, Noel. And I would check once a year. Look, I do think that freezing your credit really should give you a sense of security. It's not necessarily going to protect you from the kind of credit card fraud where somebody gets a hold of your credit card number and makes a purchase and then you have to go to your credit card company and dispute it and say, hey, this was not me and they'll take it off. But it does protect you against somebody taking out a credit card in your name because the process for, for example, getting that credit card opened and started requires being able to look at your credit report. And nobody, including you, can access your credit report when your credit is frozen. And that's something that, you know, if you've had your credit frozen long enough, you may even forget. I was in a store trying to buy a dining room table, actually, for my new apartment. And I do not take out credit cards when they offer you 15% off at the point of purchase. I'm really good at just saying, yeah, no, I do not need that. However, 15% off of a dining room table, I sort of ran the numbers in my head and I was like, well, that's significant money. Okay, yes, Bloomingdale's, I will take your credit card. And then they ran it through the system and they were like, denied. And I was like, what? My credit is fine, but my credit was frozen. And so the thing that you have to remember is that if your credit is frozen and you actually do want to apply for some sort of a loan, you've got to lift the freeze and put it back on. But it's a good idea always. Just, you know, once a year, look at your credit reports. You can do it for free at annualcreditreport.com. Just go over the information. Make sure it's correct. Mistakes end up on our credit reports. Most of them are not onerous enough to actually hurt your credit, but they can cause inconveniences when they have your address wrong or they've got something misspelled. So good idea to just once a year, check it, make sure everything looks good, and then you can continue on your merry way. And you do not, by the way, have to lift the freeze on your credit report to access your credit report. So you can actually do that without lifting the freeze. That was going to be my next question. Thank you so much, Jean. Thank you so much. And in today's Thrive, when was the last time you were up at night or stressed out during the day worried about your money? If you're like most women, it wasn't more than a week ago. And for more than a quarter of women, it was likely within the last two days. That's the result of a new study, the State of Women 2022, conducted by Her Money and the Alliance for Lifetime Income. So what are we so worried about? 
Competing financial priorities and not having enough money top the list of overall stressors, although younger women also tend to focus more on not earning enough and older ones on the cost of healthcare and market volatility. Importantly, more money doesn't seem to solve these problems. But you know what does? Knowledge. The more you know, the less you worry. Specifically, Women who say they know the specific steps to take in order to build wealth, make it last, and create a retirement income plan worry significantly less than those who don't know the steps to take. So how do you figure out the steps? Let me get you started right here. Step one to building wealth is automatically putting a chunk of every paycheck into a tax-advantaged retirement account like an IRA or 401k. Invest that money in a diversified portfolio suitable for your age and risk tolerance. And if you don't know where to put it, look for a target date retirement fund with a date in the title that lines up with when you expect to retire. Just put it all in there. When it comes to making your money last, the first step is figuring out how much you'll likely need to live on in retirement, and if your nest egg combined with social security will spill out enough to do it. Use a retirement calculator to project the eventual worth of your retirement account at your current savings rate. Take 4% of that amount and add it to your monthly social security expectations. Is it enough? If not, go back and look at how much you're kicking into retirement. Do you have the capacity to do more? Finally, when it comes to creating that retirement income plan, the 4% rule is a good place to start, but it has limitations, particularly when the markets fall in your early years of retirement. Research has shown many retirees feel less stressed, less worried, If they have a regular retirement paycheck, a pension or an annuity that they know will cover their fixed expenses for life, putting one in place often means taking a chunk of your nest egg and using it to buy a lifetime paycheck, which brings me to the last tip. Working with a financial advisor not only helps reduce financial worry considerably, but they can also help you get a plan like this in place and moving in the right direction. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Loretta McCarthy for joining us to discuss the future of investing for women and also investing in women. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us and we'll talk soon.